Hello and welcome to SurgePod, the podcast that takes you behind the surgical mask. I'm your host, Carrie Shaw, junior doctor and default candidate at the University of Oxford. I'm really excited for today's episode, where I'm going to be joined by my good friend, Gerdas Singh. Gerdas is a medical student at King's College London, and he recently completed a master's at the University of Oxford. He was a member of the NHS Assembly, co-chair of the British Medical Association Medical Students Committee, and has been named one of the top 50 most influential black and minority ethnic people in health by the Health Service Journal. (laughs) Wow, that is quite a mouthful, Gerdas. Thank you for coming. (laughs) Thanks for having me, Carrie. Oh my gosh. To be honest, I have to actually become truthful as in two of those roles I didn't even find out for myself as in like two friends messaged me on Twitter and they were like oh my god Gerdas congratulations for becoming one of the top 50 most influential people in health and I was like I was on the wards and I was like um I don't think you're right I think you've got the wrong person so it, it does come quite um surprising to me as well and um sometimes I'm not even sure what I've done myself I do literally have to keep a list sometimes The power of social media, hey? (laughs) Definitely. Well, Hugh, the UK's four chief medical officers have made it abundantly clear that without some sort of action, the NHS, in their own words, in some parts of the country... ...is the number of research publications that are now permanently part of the primary research literature and biomedical sciences that have uh, an Oxford undergraduate medical student as one of the authors. Did you know the British Medical Association is made up of over 160,000 doctors and medical students all over the country? Gerdas, you've been in quite a lot of these leadership roles, whether you (laughs) know or not. (laughs) Um, Has there ever been one sort of overarching theme or priority you've always sought to fight for? So I think, do you know what, as in like, I have been looking back, I've been in quite a lot of leadership roles, but I think it's always been by accident, to be honest, as in quite a few of them I've done because I've just cared about something or the fact that like, I just wanted to get involved because I really enjoyed it. Like I am the editor of a healthcare journal at my medical school and that's something I really, really enjoy and it's just I always do something if I enjoy it. And I always tell myself, once I stop enjoying something, then I'll stop the role. And I think that's the most important thing. But in terms of an overarching theme or priority, I definitely have to say it's equality. In every single thing I've done, I've realised that I've mainly wanted to do something that provides equality for minorities. And it's definitely been weird growing up, to be honest, as in, like I'm Sikh, I'm a gay man, and it's always been weird growing up without role models that look like you as well. And that's the thing that I've always wanted to tr- change and strive for, really, in terms of, you know, no matter where you come from, no matter who you are, do whatever you want to do. Become a footballer, become a doctor, be the plastic surgeon from Grey's Anatomy, which is where I originally yes, got the yes. idea from. You know, uh, Dr. Sloan, well, Mr. Sloan, whatever Americans call it, but oh, absolutely fantastic. But yeah, just be able to do whatever you want, whoever you are, that's the main goal for me. Yeah, I 100% resonate with that. I do things because I enjoy them. And I think the minute you don't enjoy something, you just lose 
that motivation, that drive, and it becomes a chore. And could you imagine your, your job or your role or, you know, whatever you're doing on top of trying to be a doctor being a chore? Gosh, that's Oh, definitely. Horrible. As in, it's like, um, do you know, they always say the saying, don't they? That you always say, um, you should only do a job if it doesn't feel like a job. Work should not feel like work. And I think that is so true. As yeah, in, like, if you, you love your, enjoy if what you love do. your job, you never have to work a day in the world. That's the one. You're so much more eloquent than me, Carrie. <laughs> <laughs> now, Gerdas, just thinking about this COVID pandemic that seems to have been going on forever. We, we heard a lot about a year ago about, you know, reshuffling of medics and redeployment of doctors or medical students throughout the NHS. And something that was really coming up in the news was the role of medical students in all of this. And I think that's something you were really keen to address. Can you tell us any more? Yeah. So I think the shocking thing was as soon as Matt Hancock really um he suddenly announced that we were all well the final years were graduating and not, nobody had actually hit, heard of this and we were all like suddenly shocked we were like oh my god like he's suddenly making these people doctors and they've not even been like told themselves what, what the hell's happening wait so you heard of this on the news social media yeah so literally like he announced it and it was like gosh they're graduating everyone like and we were currently at that time we were fighting for contracts for medical students because there was a lot of stuff going on and how, how medical students weren't getting like death in service benefits so touch wood but if a medical student died from covid there would have been no compensation to their families and then there was like the whole cock up with the a-level results in terms of you know who was going to medical school who wasn't uh, based on like teachers estimated grades it was just like a whole thing and for me it was really stressful because it was like medical students didn't know whether they were becoming doctors medical students didn't know whether it was safe to go on wards it was so new to everybody especially in the UK like I don't know of a single instance where something as big as COVID has affected medical practice as much as in it's been all over and like even now, like you see medical students, will we get alternative PPE? Will we get masks? What sort of masks do we need? On which wards does it different, differ between hospitals? It's all over the place. Well, I can tell you that's not just medical students. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as, as doctors, we got redeployed. I got sent an optional redeployment. And actually, I remember reading the email and thinking, this sounds like I'm in the army (laughs) you know that word redeployment is such a bizarre term I'd never come across it and of course I can see why they need us to work in you know maybe a very COVID heavy area or a very COVID heavy service Um, but you're right it it was quite scary because we just didn't know where we were going to get thrown in and what it was going to be like and you know like you said is there going to be enough PPE at that time vaccines weren't even on the radar so how were we going to be protected it was quite scary it was really scary and it's just it's even like looking as I can't even imagine what he was like as a doctor during that time because all I was thinking was is this the profession that I'm going to go into like am I going to be suddenly told to move halfway across the country because like they need people there and stuff like that of course we have been always seen as this altruistic profession that people can trust and people can nurture. But at the end of the day, I think it's so important that we are seen as people as well. Like we all have families. We all want to do our best for the patients, but also for ourselves. Like we can't sacrifice our own well-being for 
other people like they always say you can't pour from a kettle if it or a teapot if it's empty I think that's so true that you know sometimes as medics we forget to look after ourselves and and actually just coming back to the whole role of medical students in tackling the pandemic um, you were obviously just finishing off your master's at Oxford and going back to medical school so what exactly was your role in addressing this need for or this or this hope that the government had of medical students going into the NHS yeah so at the time it was quite a busy period as in I remember doing like meetings until like 8 p.m at night uh, because at the time I was the co-chair of the medical students committee at the BMA and we were very much you know the voice of medical students at that time we have like such a large membership and it was very much speaking to, you know, negotiating contracts. So we were negotiating contracts with Health Education England. We were negotiating what sort of protections we could get from the GMC. Um, what sort of things, you know, would be there for medical students. So I was very instrumental in that in terms of producing those contracts, you know, the draft contracts, speaking to different people, speaking to different trade unions, seeing what sort of mutual benefits we could get from this, because I think we need to remember that this isn't just medical students, it was all sorts of healthcare students, it was nurses, dental students, like we've heard from like nursing students, how, you know, they are literally like becoming nurses now, or dental students who in Scotland, like have been forced to retake a year, there's all sorts of things that people didn't see coming up. And it went straight through from March up until even August, as in in August, we were definitely battling. I remember doing my medical school induction at the same time as trying to uh, coming back to the year. And it was trying to balance that as well as the whole thing with medical students and A-level results and who was going to medical school. That was quite a busy time as well, because we didn't know whether people would be severely disadvantaged if they'd gone to a state school, for example. And we were very much getting in contact with people. And we even knew like doctors, part of the British Medical Association, like they were very much like, I don't know where my kid's going to university. I don't know. Like they've worked so hard and it was quite upsetting to see people that tried so hard. I mean, I don't know about you, Carrie, but I remember applying to medical school. It's so fresh in my mind. And that was a stressful time uh, for me as in like, you've been told like you were always the best of the best in your class you were always you know trying your best and then like you get a rejection <laughs> like I've never been rejected from anything in my life like what the hell is that all about <laughs> that is the first hurdle getting into medical school but you will feel this as you become a doctor every couple of years when you reapply for a job or a new training contract or a specialty training contract you think I thought I was good um why have I ranked so poorly or you know, why are my friends getting jobs in this area and I'm not? It's it's really stressful and you're constantly in competition. And actually, even during the year as a medical trainee, you've got so many more competencies to achieve apart from just being a doctor. So, for example, you have to do some research. You have to do a clinical audit. You have to do teaching. You have to do your professional exams. These are all have to, have to, have to, have to. And if you don't do them, you don't pass your year. And if you don't pass your year you know, you don't progress as a doctor or you can't apply to the next job. So <laughs> not to scare you <laughs> when you become a doctor, but it's hard. I mean, it's already scaring me because my best friends um, are just applying to, well, they've just got their foundation deanery applications and even watching that process. I mean, that's going to be me next year. 
but oh my god like one's placed in North London one's placed in South Thames it's all over the place and I'm just like oh my god like it's not over and it's so funny when you talk to people and they're like at least it'll be over once you graduate and I'm like you don't even have a clue that's just the beginning (laughs) literally 10 more years I mean both of us like we studied together didn't we at Oxford and I think both of us tried to do something that we really enjoyed And I think for me, it was very much, you know, if I'm going to do something, although it's going to help my career, I do want to do something that I enjoy. And I think, as we were saying before, like, we have to do things that we enjoy at the end of the day. Absolutely. And it's made me think um, a little bit about social mobility, because you've just said how people were worried that they might not get into a particular medical school or maybe a particular area because of their social demographic background and you know it's it's really made me think about the well-being of our medical students or junior doctors or just students in general and I wondered do you think this is a real problem the well-being of our medical students and how they might experience um, medical training because of their background? Oh definitely as in like this is such a prevalent issue and I don't think people realize as in about 300 medical students per year drop out of medical school and if you think about it that's about a year of a medical school in the UK as in that's a whole year group just completely deciding that medicine's not for them anymore and I'll be honest that's mainly because of burnout as in in medical school you're sent all over the place as in I'm currently in Margate now and that's two hours drive away from my medical school for example and although you know I did choose it and it was fantastic it is quite far and you've got to think all these people do they have enough support do they get you know enough time to themselves or are they treated very much like workers as in you watch your friends in other professions and you're like I'm on a six-year medical degree and yes I did choose it but I'm technically working at the moment and you know I've got financial worries can I afford to pay my rent you know NHS bursary for example isn't as high as student finances so you suddenly experience this drop in income and you're just like gosh can I afford to do this anymore so it is very much a breaking point I do think it is one of these massive things and I think what we need to do to tackle it is one we really need to address the fact that medical students really are undervalued on wards and they are really undervalued in society I think in terms of you know we we are always seen as the best of the best as in I don't know a single person who's got into medical school without an A-star like you did have to do your best in the A-levels. So it's weird that you are doing a longer degree and one, you're not financially compensated for practically working on wards. And when you're on the wards, you know, you introduce yourself and then they're just like, okay, yeah, just shadow this person. And you're like, no, like, I feel like I can get stuck in more. I can do more. Like, just give me some more responsibility and just give me that experience. And I think the pandemic actually in a good way, although obviously the pandemic's not a good thing, in a weird way, it's shown that medical students can do more. And it's highlighted these difficulties that students experience because it's so weird how we're now told that we can do more. We can work as healthcare assistants on the wards. We can, you know, speak to doctors. We're caring for each other much more. And I think this environment now is much more supportive than it ever was beforehand. And I, I just hope that we continue this learning and supportive environment as we go across. 
I think that's really interesting. So you've touched on how medical students have gone from shadowing doctors to actually in the pandemic coming onto the forefront of the workforce. And the problems with that are that they need to be paid <laughs> and, and treated well and their well-being needs to be prioritized. But then the flip side of that is that actually we can see there are huge resource um, and they're smart and they're knowledgeable and they're ambitious. Yeah, definitely. You've obviously been on the NHS Assembly and the BMA. Now, what exactly are these organisations and what's been their role in supporting medical students? Yeah, so the NHS Assembly has very much been this pioneer organisation and uh, committee where people were very much talking about uh, how do we get people that work on the front line, doctors, healthcare workers, nurses, counsellors, all these people, you know, they do have some involvement with the NHS, but they never really truly communicate in one specific place. And it's like, how do we get them all together and get them talking about the key fundamental issues? I mean, we've heard of the NHS long-term plan that Matt Hancock announced, and it's very much like, how do we get the opinions? So Simon Stevens very much got this committee together and he was like okay I need all of these people to come together and discuss this so I am one of two medical students on that um, organization and we've definitely been discussing like how much more can we do in terms of combating racism in the NHS or how can we do more in terms of reducing the amount that doctors have to travel and it's much more generalized issues whereas the BMA they have different committees so they have a GP's organization they had a junior doctors committee they had a medical students committee and my role in the medical students committee as I said before was very much chairing that so I started off as the medical school rep for my medical school then I progressed to being deputy chair of welfare so I oversaw policies on mental health, equality, things that I really cared about. Um, So liaising with different organisations, combating alcoholism in medical students and trying to fight for equality. So I hosted the first, um, which is something that I'm quite proud of with regards to hosting the first um, racism on clinical wards roundtable. So I got people that were black and ethnic minorities around the same room to talk to the um oh I've lost what they're called now but the Equality and Human Rights Commission that's it uh the EHRC and talking to them about our experiences and how raw they are about not being made to feel welcome in medical school that was a really powerful moment for me so things like that and then obviously progressing to chairing that committee um so overseeing the different portfolios and coordinating all of the reps in the medical schools. And I think your background being minority ethnic and then also being a gay man, as you've said, can probably influence your perception and has given you experience. So was there anything in particular that helped you get these roles or how did you find yourself sitting at a BMA roundtable or chairing it and then being on the NHS assembly with some of these real big dogs in the healthcare world? Yeah, I think, to be honest, I do, as in, uh, my parents always say, don't say it's luck. But I do think sometimes I feel like it's quite luck. And I think it's one of these things, as you've said, like I'm ethnic minority. Um, I think we have some sort of imposter syndrome. And I think that you've probably felt it yourself in terms of 
you don't feel like you deserve these things, even though you've probably worked hard for them. And I think we need to stop apologising for who we are. And a lot of these things, so like the NHS Assembly, a lot of people were like, oh, you're too young. And I was like, oh, I'm just going to apply. I'm probably not going to get it, but I'll go for it. Even with like my funding for my master's, I was like, probably not going to get it. The BMA, it was a tweet. I remember just seeing the tweet and they were like, committee applications are now open, nominate yourself now. And I was like, that was literally at 2am. I was like still awake and I remember seeing it and I was like, I'm just going to nominate myself because I do care about these things and I do want to go for these things. And it wasn't ever to do with leadership. I must be honest, as in it was all to do with caring about the certain things that I thought that these organisations organizations stood for and I was like I as you said as a gay man I, it took me a while I, I have to be honest to come out and even like seeing it through my daily life as in like on clinical wards even applying to medical school I experienced racism um you know why are you applying just because you're Indian and I was like oh god like it's one of those again and it's stuff like that like I wanted to change that dynamic and I wanted to feed into organisations that had the resources to do that. I want to read you something about imposter syndrome which my boss, your boss, (laughs) um, read to me when I started my PhD at Oxford Um, and and this really put it in context for me. So it's talking, uh, it's a famous man who's talking. He says, some years ago I was lucky enough to be invited to a gathering of great and good people, artists and scientists, writers and discoverers of things and I felt that at any moment they would realize that I didn't qualify to be there among these people who had really done great things. On my second night there I was standing at the back of the hall while a musical entertainment happened and I started talking to a very nice very polite elderly gentleman about several things including our shared first name. And then he pointed to the hall of people and said the words to the effect of, I just look at all these people and I think, what the heck am I doing here? They've made amazing things. I just went where I was sent. And I said, yes, but you were the first man on the moon. And I think that counts for something. (laughs) And I felt a bit better because if Neil Armstrong felt like an imposter, maybe everyone did. Wow. Isn't that incredible that Neil Armstrong, the first man on the moon, feels like an imposter? And you've just told me you have imposter syndrome too when you sit, you know, at the NHS assembly or the BMA. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think I'm, <laughs> I mean, I was about to say, I don't think I'm going on the moon any time soon, but yeah, it's it definitely puts it in perspective for sure. Gosh. Yeah, and I think that's a big thing. You know, we always feel sometimes we don't belong. Uh, Sometimes our achievements aren't big enough. And the work you've been doing is really, you know, looking after the well-being of medical students and making them feel important and making them feel like they belong and they are good enough. Yeah, for sure. As in, I've definitely had some messages and it pleases me a lot when medical students come up to me and they say, God, you've done these great things and, you know, you achieve this and literally I just feel like I'm talking to another medical student as in I'm still the same person who goes on club nights I'm still the same person who you know goes shopping and probably spends too much even though like doesn't really have the budget for it with medical school and um, the wrong people 
<laughs> excuse me uh, <laughs> matter of perspective but definitely yes <laughs> <laughs> now Gerdas you've been doing some incredible work but this is all very business <laughs> <laughs> definitely it's such a different conversation than we normally have Carrie for sure <laughs> absolutely so I want the listeners to get to know you better in our next section behind the surgical mask I'm going to ask you three rapid fire questions and we want your honest answers. Okay. What do you want to take to a desert island? Oh, a boat <laughs> to get off it. <laughs> Very good idea. Yeah, but Gerdas, can you swim? No, I can row. <laughs> oh yeah, of course you can. <laughs> you've talked about rowing and you've talked about sports in other podcasts. So tell us, what's the first sport you've ever taken part in? Oh, okay. I'm going to defend this because everybody always reacts. It's cheerleading. As in cheerleading is a sport before anybody ever says anything. Yes, get us. You go. It's one of the hardest ones. The funniest thing is I actually stopped doing cheerleading because I was demoted from the top of the pyramid. So I switched to kickboxing weirdly. <laughs> Excellent story. And last one. Are you an early bird or a night owl? I'm an exhausted pigeon. I have to be honest, as in I get up at 6am and I probably sleep at like 1am, 2am. It's really weird. I, I hear really... you. Our yeah. days are so busy as doctors, medical <laughs> students, everyone really these days. Exactly. We're often taught by experts in their fields, uh, which does mean that they're very often very passionate about what they do, which is great, but they give you loads and loads of information, <laughs> nowhere near the amount that you could possibly learn. The fun part is that you get to go way beyond the lecture material, so you get to, um, you get to answer, you get to think about, you know, why, does, why do things happen? So much of school learning is, this is what you need to learn, go away and learn it, and there is that in medicine too at Oxford, but there's also a lot of, this is what we're teaching you, do you think this is right, how can we tell now, Gerdas, you've obviously been instrumental in instigating change for medical students. What do you think are the biggest challenges in addressing these concerns? I think the hardest things to do are reaching compromises because you can really see both sides of the coin and you can see both sides of the perspective and people are really trying to do the best for their own respective parties. I think the biggest challenge is trying to get the best for both sides. And it's always hard because neither side really wants what the other wants. I have to be honest. Yeah, it's a negotiation. So when you have these both sides of the coin, as you've put it, or opposing views, how do you end up balancing all of this in a boardroom? Yeah, so I think the best thing to do is make sure that everybody has a voice. The funniest thing that I do is, because I normally know the people that are around that room, I listen to them all first. So I see who has the loudest voice and then I go straight away from them. Because I'm like, you're going to talk anyway. So let's hear from the people who aren't talking and let's see. Uh, it all comes down to, you know, equality, as I've said before, and minorities. And I think it's important to listen to all of the views in the room, listen to the quietest voices first, and then weigh them up as in whose voice really will need short term and whose voice will really need long term because I think there's always a time and a place when people need the best things um I don't necessarily think that they always have to compete some just need to take a back for for some others I just want to pick up you said you know you know some of these people already now 
I'm a woman, I'm ethnic minority, I'm an academic, I'm a clinician. So something I really struggle with is how do I get to know the right people, as we call them yeah. in medicine? So how, how do you do that? Is it important to have a relationship outside the boardroom? And how do you build that relationship? I think it's by not putting pressure on it, really, as in my closest friendships, as in with you, with people that we've worked with, I've not put any pressure on it as in you know you have your expectations of people and you see them in the boardroom and you see if we were to sit in the same boardroom I can guarantee both of us carriers and we'd see we'd come across really you know outspoken very caring about what we want and I think that puts some people off but I think outside of the boardroom we'd probably be quite introverted and probably quite um we wouldn't really know what to do with ourselves. I can guarantee that we'd probably be the ones that sit with a wine glass at the side of the room. And I think it's really not um, letting your prejudices get the better of you. And I always think that it's best not to judge someone too early. And I think the most important thing is never to lose sense of yourself, as in we were discussing before in terms of what we get up to, as in like, I know that you've done uh, yoga and you like enjoy your gym classes and I enjoy rowing as in it's so important to be human as in I think in leadership roles I do see it quite commonly in terms of people just losing that sense of actually being human and that's the one thing that I never want to forget the person the little boy who came into medical school and was so shy didn't go to the freshest events I want to make sure that I don't forget about him I think it's really interesting what you said. And I just wonder, do you think any of your own personal experiences ever influences your work? And how do you chair these meetings when you've got all of these different personalities? Are you ever influenced by your own experience or your own story? Yeah, definitely. As in, I think the racism one for sure is very much coming down to sometimes you even see it as in people always say you know how do you detect microaggressions but it's the change of tone of voice or I remember like one of the biggest poignant moments a few years ago was I went to a dinner with one of my professors he was thanking me because I showed um, some medical students around that had come from abroad and I remember one of his colleagues one of the deans actually uh, turned around to me and he goes oh which medical school are you at and I said my medical school and he goes is that in India <laughs> and I was like Whoa. Could, yeah and I was like you can hear my accent as in I, I've yeah I, I've been born here my mum was born here and it's like I don't understand as in like it made no sense to me and I think those are the personal experiences that I always take with me as in they're always the ones that no matter how far you come people have always judged you and it's about proving them wrong and those are the experiences that I always take with me into like chairing meetings because I'm like there will be someone in that meeting that probably has similar experiences or completely different experiences that needs their voice to be heard as well. Is that unconscious bias or is that just plain prejudice? I or I think unconscious bias is I really don't like it because I think unconscious bias definitely lets a lot of people off because when you say, oh yeah, it must be unconscious bias. What you're saying to that person is you're not aware of what you're doing when really a lot of them are. And like, you have to change your tone of voice somehow. And it's your brain telling you that your voice changes and things like that. And I think, yeah, you can be unconscious of it, but that lets you off scot-free from 
taking ownership of it because you're basically saying to that person, it's okay, you know, it's not your fault, you know, you stubbed your toe, like that's not your fault either. But can you really compare being racist to someone, even unintentionally, making someone feel so bad about themselves to just accidentally bumping your toe into the door? I don't think you can. Wow, that's pretty profound, Gerdas. Thanks for, you know, putting that so eloquently. (laughs) Thank you. It's normally the other way around, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Touché. Can you tell us, is there a particular moment, either good or bad, you just want to finish off with um, and share with us in your experience as a medical student or as a master's student at Oxford or sitting on any of these committees? Oh, I was thinking about this. And do you know what? It always, I'm going to be that annoying person that's just like, oh, I can't think of just one. But no, I'm not going to do it. Um, to be honest, as in, I just remember um, the funniest one was made, probably the most recent, and it was jumping into the lake um, <laughs> after finishing my master's degree. After your uh, degree, yes, at Oxford. Yeah, so I think that's probably the most poignant moment because I just remember how difficult the exam was, as in, it was four and a half grueling hours of just talking to someone, trying to defend myself. I cried talking so... to two people, not just one person. You were exactly. being grilled by two people on your viva for your master's thesis at Oxford and you were middle of your medical school. You'd taken a year out to come and exactly. do this. Exactly, and I remember it was during the pandemic. I had literally had to go to Oxford for this as well, speak to them over video. So I had to go to Oxford for some strange reason. And I just remember, like, I bawled my eyes out afterwards as in it's just a sense of relief all the emotions come to the surface and then I just remember jumping into that river as per Oxford tradition and just be like what the hell am I doing here as in it was just it was always a dream of mine ever since going to Oxford summer school in year 12 and being like this is where I wanted to go just to be able to finish it I mean oh my gosh it was just such an emotional moment for me and I think medical school students always forget how much they've achieved and I just remember like even when my friends have graduated medical school now I sent them gifts because I was like they were like oh yeah it's the next thing like oh yeah I'm starting here and I was like you're not stopping to think about what you've achieved just yet and how much you've achieved so far. I think sometimes we're so busy we forget the good moments and we forget to take it all in. Definitely it's just so it yeah for sure. And something I've definitely become aware of is this post-university depression, as it's now termed. So people that finish their degree don't take a break, don't take a moment to reflect and take it in, go straight into a job. Like you said, with medics, sometimes move across the country, don't have that support. And suddenly things just don't feel great. Yeah, for sure. I said, this is the thing that one thing that I'll always recommend to people is scroll through your photos on your phone. I said, I was doing it this morning and I just saw our photo carry from like the Wally ball from Christmas exchanging gifts and stuff like this. As in like, those are really poignant moments and they're not even related to our medical degree. They're not even related to how much we've achieved either. They're just those little moments that have brought a smile to my face this morning. And I think people just need to remember those. I absolutely agree. And I'm so glad that you've joined us on this podcast. Thank you so much, Gerda. Thank you so much for your time, Carrie. You are such an inspiration to me and you definitely have a salty edge (laughs) to balance it off. (laughs) I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud of that. And if it goes from salty 
self saltiness to marinade. That's not my fault. That's yours. <laughs> And I'm sure there are just so many medical students and people who are very grateful for your leadership. So thank you for everything you've done. Oh, thank you so much. To our listeners, thank you for joining us. If you've enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to rate and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We want to hear from you. So join us on Instagram at Dr. Carrie Shah and on Twitter at Carrie Shah. And you can find Gerdas at Gerdas Singh. Shout out to my producer, Myra Anubi, and we'll see you next time.